So it's good to be back with you guys. I was preaching at Northside Presbyterian last week. We had a good little chunk of supporters come and help me, um, you know, just make some connections there at the church. And so that was really good. In fact, Lindsay, who I think is up here, I don't think she's teaching Sunday school. Lindsay and Joy were there, and Lindsay found out one of her neighbors is actually one of the Northside Presbyterian congregants, and so now some different connections have been made there in their neighborhood, and I just kind of love that because it fits with our value of being ecumenical. And so my hope is that we'll eventually be able to have Brooke, the pastor over there, come and speak at our church as well because she's lovely. And this morning, Ken is actually preaching at the Lower Manhattan uh, Blue Ocean Faith Church. And so next Sunday, we'll mark the first Sunday in quite a while that both of us will actually be here. (laughs) Yeah, I think since before his sabbatical. (laughs) So that should be the way through fall and winter as well. So I'm very much looking forward to being back to normal. So we've been in this uh, sermon series called Envy, Rivalry, and Violence. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I promised you guys I would do Jesus part two. So I've been excited to preach this sermon. Um, I'm gonna start with a two minute quick review because I know some of us have um, been on vacation or missed a few weeks, and I know there are a few visitors who I don't want to feel lost here in the midst of this series. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at scripture through the lens of Rene Girard and his work on violence and scapegoating. So Rene Girard, he was a historian and he was a lit crit at Stanford for many decades. And so he studied literature from all across the world and history. And what he began to notice was a particular pattern of human violence. Um, cycles of violence that we enact and keep reenacting. And so what he said, essentially his violence cycle looks like this. He says, violence always begins with desire. It always begins with mimetic desire. So mimetic just means imitative, right? All humans have desire. In Christian faith, we would say desire is good. It's not a bad thing, but desire can become bad. It can become bad if we take on someone else's destructive desire And it can become bad if it leads to envy and rivalry, right? Like with Cain and Abel or with Joseph and his brothers. So desire can become bad if we're all desiring the same things and we begin to fight over those things. So envy and rivalry lead to increased anxiety, increased tension in any group, right? This is like group systems theory. It can be a church, it can be a company, it can be a school classroom, it can be a nation. And so he says, envy and rivalry lead to anxiety and tension within a group. And then when this tension reaches a tipping point, it turns to violence. And if the group can't find an outlet for that violence, what it does is it turns on itself. And so within a nation, we would call this civil war. So to save the group from self-imploding, the group members identify a scapegoat on which they can project all of their collective anxiety and envy and rivalry. And that scapegoat can be anybody within the group, something that makes them different. It can be because they have more money than other people, because they're gay, because they're not white, because they're smarter than everybody else. It can be anything. It can be one person or a group of people. And so the group identifies this scapegoat or scapegoats and projects all of their own anxiety onto those scapegoats. And what they do is then they make a false accusation against the scapegoat. And then usually the accusation that's made against the scapegoat is actually true of the people making the accusations. Right, so here's an example that brings it back down from like civil war and big things. So I was talking with um, someone who I know who is a college professor. She teaches at Wayne State. 
And she said, oh, yeah, I, I call out scapegoating all the time because she's familiar with this sort of group systems theory. She said, you know, I always call it out in my college classrooms because there's always that one kid who usually sits in the front and raises their hand and answers all of the questions. And everybody in the class hates that person. And, so, and the reason they hate them is because, you know, they, they're like using the scapegoating mechanism to like channel all of their own anxiety. She goes, there's actually a function that scapegoat is playing in the group. Right? It's covering the fact that nobody else has read. And that person has read. And so they'll like, be like, oh yeah, that person's a loser. That person's not going to have any friends. They'll isolate them. They'll make fun of them. They'll bully them. She goes, but really what that is, is it's really saying that actually they kind of feel like a loser themselves. And they're in rivalry for my attention or my approval or whatever is going on. So the group doesn't turn violence on it, you know, it doesn't implode on itself in that kind of situation because it doesn't reach quite that level of anxiety. But she's like, that's where scapegoating takes place in an everyday world. And so what she does is she calls it out. And she just says, you guys are going to be tempted to make fun of this person who's always answering the questions, but the truth is you haven't done your reading. So don't do that which reminded me of like Harry Potter. If you ever saw like in the very first one, I was watching that with my niece and I was seeing how Hermione is answering all the questions and then Ron makes fun of her. I'm like, this happens in classrooms all across, well, the world, right? <laughs> well, when that anxiety reaches a certain point, we're talking about in a much more um, intense system, they identify the scapegoat and then the scapegoat, while well, they can be bullied and isolated, like in a classroom, but they might also be exiled or killed. Right? So in a company situation, it might be they're fired. Um, it could be in a society where somebody is killed or you know, kicked out of the country, that sort of thing. And the thing is, is that once that scapegoat is gone, it actually does achieve group peace. Right? It makes the group feel better about itself. Getting rid of the scapegoat brings a unity to an anxious group. And in fact, it works so well. And the relief of having the scapegoat gone is so strong that the person or people who were once accused of being so horrible and bringing this potential terrible calamity on the group are now thought of a lot more kindly. Right? They're remembered in sort of nostalgic terms, even eliciting pity. And so sometimes the group even deifies the scapegoat in myths because of this feeling it brings. But the scapegoat, if they're still alive, they're never going to receive an apology from anyone in the mob. If they do, it is a rare occurrence because the mob disperses guilt so that no one person has to own it, right? No one person has to own the guilt because the whole crowd is owning it. So they'll talk about that terrible thing that happened or how horrible it was that this had to happen to such and such a person, but they'll never talk about that terrible thing I did or that terrible thing I took part in that terrible thing of I made fun or I was silent when people made fun of that kid in the classroom. And the thing about scapegoating is that it actually ultimately makes a group unsafe, right? Because it doesn't address the actual sources of the underlying anxiety. And so that cycle will eventually repeat if it's not addressed. Once you have a scapegoat, you'll have a time of peace, but then you'll have to find another. And so René Girard, he identified this cycle of violence and then he realized that the Bible did something different than all of the other literature that he had ever come across. He said it actually reveals this cycle and then it gives us wisdom on how to break it. And it does this slowly throughout the course of the narrative and then it comes to a climax in the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So over the last few weeks, we've gone through Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Joseph and his brothers and Peter and I did what I called Jesus part one where I touched a little bit on the Sermon on the Mount. But today what I want to do is look at like the big picture of the Jesus story through the lens of this Girardian cycle to maybe see what it has to say to us. 
Because through this lens, Jesus is the perfect candidate to be a scapegoat. Right? He was born into this large-scale system of envy and rivalry and anxiety. So on the one hand, the Jewish people, right, Jew, uh, Jesus was a Jewish man, they were living in the land that was sacred to them. And they had rebuilt the temple in that land, and they were able to go and celebrate the feasts and the festivals. They were able to make their sacrifices at the temple, and so that all seemed well and good. But on the other hand, this land that they embraced as sacred was also occupied by the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people were taxed heavily, and they were often burdened by the demands and the oppression of the Romans. And so they're both living in this space. And so there was envy and rivalry among the different people occupying the land that is now Israel and Palestine. It seems they still have a similar issue. Because that land is and always has been really significant geographically, right? It's significant for trade. It lies on the major trade routes between Europe and Asia and Africa. It's strategically significant for military purposes, especially for Rome in that time, because Rome at that point actually occupied most of the land around the Mediterranean Sea. And much of what is northern Israel is really fertile. Like you can grow a lot of food there, you can grow grapes there for wine, and that is very, a very valuable land in the arid Middle East, right? So it's like prime real estate. And so the Jews, they wanted the Romans gone for oh so many reasons. And Rome wanted to keep the Jews subjugated so that they could do what they pleased, you know, move their military, move the goods, protect the trade routes without having to deal with a full-on rebellion. And so there was rivalry between the Jews and the Romans. But then there were all these smaller rivalries. It's never so simple in a complex system, right? Within the Jewish community itself, you had the Pharisees. And they were oftentimes colluding with Rome to try and maintain their own power. And then you had a group called the Sadducees who wanted to control the temple. And these two groups didn't always get along. And then you had people who opted out of all of that. They said, you know, all of this is corrupt. These were the Essenes. And they went off and they started their own utopian community in the desert. A lot of people believe John the Baptist was among that lot. And then there were the Zealots who were intent on overthrowing the Roman government by force. And many people believe Judas was or had been part of that. Right? And then there's this vast group of just everyday people with their varying loyalties, mostly interested in feeding their families and just trying to get on the best that they could. But all of this envy and rivalry for land and power and control fed into this ancient, uh, anxious system in a way that we might call it a powder keg. Right? And so every major feast or festival, the Jews were prone to rioting and Rome would torture or crucify sometimes people who didn't fall in line. So they were at a breaking point as a society. They were at this point in the cycle of violence where the group could easily turn on itself and have a war, which they did 40 years later. But they managed to have some scapegoats between that that sort of staved off that war. And one of those was a rabbi from the Galilee who they were able to use as one of these scapegoats to channel their violent energy. And Jesus was the perfect scapegoat because he was different in so many ways. Right? He was a Jew in Roman-occupied territory. He was from the Galilee, which, think of it being like from the boonies. Like in Michigan, you might say, it's like he's from the UP. It's beautiful up there, you can grow lots of things, but you know, it's like way up there. He's from the Galilee. He was rumored to be illegitimate, he wasn't married, which in his culture at that time could have all sorts of unsavory implications. He was a rabbi who didn't really have any credentials going around and like calling out the rabbis who were credentialed and he was taking them to task. He was different and his followers were different. 
The people following him were the poor and the unclean and the women and the tax collectors and the other so-called sinners. And so this Jesus was stirring people up. He was performing miracles and he was speaking against the unjust power structures that were at work in his time. And so he had this crowd of followers that many people in power found threatening. And people started to whisper that maybe he was the Messiah. Right, the Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one. Right, so there were rumors within the Jewish community that there would be an anointed man who would come and who would deliver them. And they thought that he would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and establish God's peace on earth. And so they're worried that that's what he's doing. And so the false accusations started to, started to come. We're going to look at just one of those in John chapter 10. This is verses 22 to 33. So then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts and he was walking in Solomon's colonnade. So Solomon's colonnade is sometimes called Solomon's porch. It's part of the temple. And it says that the Jews who were gathered around him, they were saying, look, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now in their minds, Messiah didn't necessarily equal God. It was just going to be a man who happened to be anointed by God. So they're saying, if you're this guy who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, you tell us. And Jesus said, look, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. He said, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. Like, I'm not using my words, but you should look at my actions and my deeds. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they're never going to perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here, Jesus is taking it up a step, right? He's kind of making a claim to be God. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. They wanted him to die. And Jesus said to them, Look, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? I'm an innocent man. And they said, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Right? We're stoning you for blasphemy. This is the accusation, the false accusation. Right? They're accusing him of speaking offensively about God and of claiming to be one with God while only being a man. But that accusation of blasphemy is false. Right? That's what the gospel writers are trying to set up for the reader to see. He's saying, look, Jesus isn't merely a man. However... The people making that accusation against him are. They are only human. And in fact, they're actually blaspheming against God by telling Jesus that he isn't who he says he is. So they're accusing him of blasphemy while blaspheming. You see how that works? Right? They get to then offload their own blasphemy. They get to offload their own inability to hear God's call to join his cause, to free the oppressed and heal the sick and work for justice and peace into the world, to offload their own sin and their own anxiety onto Jesus and make him carry that. So things are bubbling up. Well, soon after that, Jesus doesn't make things easier for himself. He goes and he performs a really significant miracle. His friend Lazarus had died. And so he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that only inflamed the tension because more people began to follow him. And so Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest that year, he really wanted Jesus to die. And it says that he actually knew Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus wasn't actively looking to lead an armed rebellion. But he understood the power of the scapegoat to bring temporary social peace. John 11, this is the chapter after the one we just read. It says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus, they believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. And they said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our temple and our nation. Do you see what they're, they're doing here? They're saying, we know he's innocent, but he's gathering enough people around him that the Romans are going to think he's not innocent. And some of the Jews think that he's also going to lead an armed rebellion. And if they think that, they're going to come down hard on us and we are going to lose our temple and our nation. That's what was at stake. And so one of them, named Caiaphas, this is the high priest, he said, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Right? This is like the scapegoat being unmasked right here. Caiaphas knew that if they could turn around and accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and if they could accuse Jesus of trying to overthrow the Romans, the latter of which they knew he was innocent of, but which they themselves secretly kind of wanted to do. They wanted the Romans gone. They knew that if they could offload that onto him and they could rally enough people to believe that Jesus was the real issue, they could have him put to death to keep the peace. Caiaphas, I, you know nothing at all. So this is exactly what they did. They arrested Jesus. They accused him. They whipped together a mob, screaming for the death of a man against whom they had never even heard charges. We're told that Pilate, the Roman ruler, knew Jesus was innocent. He says it three times in the Gospel of John. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. And so the scapegoat, Jesus, is then dressed like a fool. They gave him a false crown of thorns and a purple robe, and they disfigured him with a whip so that he would look nothing like them. Because the more different he appears, the easier it is to dehumanize him and to kill him. And so he becomes the sacrificial lamb, and he is indeed killed. And after Jesus, the scapegoat, is killed, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke show one of the Roman executioners saying that he knew Jesus was innocent. Right? The Gospel writers underscore this. They have Caiaphas say it, they have Pilate say it, and then they have this Roman soldier say it. They knew Jesus was innocent. He was innocent, the Son of God, and he became, like so many in this world, an innocent victim of scapegoating. Right? Jesus knows what it is to be a victim. And so humans killed Jesus, not God. Humans killed Jesus, not God. And it wasn't just the Jews, as so many anti-Semitic teachings have claimed through the years. It wasn't just the Romans. It was Jew and Gentile alike representing all of humankind who killed Jesus. Right? We took an innocent man and we killed him because of our sin. When scripture tells us that Jesus bore the sin of the world, he was bearing our projected anxiety and sin and shame upon him. And as I've preached before, and I know I will preach many times to come, the thing about Jesus is that he's not like other victims, right? He's not just any old scapegoat. He doesn't stay sacrificed. Jesus truly died, but he truly rose from the dead. And in doing so, what God is doing is he's overturning our human verdict of the scapegoat. Right? Jesus is overturning our human verdict. He overturned our verdict of guilty. We declare Jesus guilty. And God came in and he said, no, you are wrong. This is an innocent man. I overturn, I overturn your verdict 
and I'm going to raise him from the dead. And what I am doing right now is declaring this entire scapegoating system, the entire cycle of human violence, foolish and void, it needs to stop. It's like God is saying to humans, look, I've been trying to wean you guys off of sacrifices since the beginning. I've seen your human propensity to do this. And so first, I had you guys channel that sacrificing energy onto animals. I had you turn away from doing it to children, and I had you start to sacrifice animals, and I had you do it under specific conditions at specific times of the year, once a year, in the temple, done by a priest, to try and help to maintain your, your violent propensities. But now I declare it done. It's foolish, it's done, no more. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Stop doing this to each other. And that becomes the invitation then to all humans. Right? Following Jesus isn't about getting a ticket to heaven when you die. Following Jesus isn't about like, coming up with a set of rules for your life and making sure other people want to live those rules as well. Following Jesus means renouncing our human propensity to take part in this scapegoating system, right? So following Jesus means that we open our hearts, open our arms as Jesus did on the cross in an embrace of all of humanity. And Jesus promised us, he said, you're not gonna have to do this alone. I will send you my Holy Spirit that's going to live inside of you. And you can have relationship with me, the living, breathing, risen from the dead, declared innocent Lord. And I will guide you in how to do this, right? So Ken preached about Peter last week. And if you weren't here, I'd highly recommend that you listen to it. I read through his notes. It was pretty powerful. And he was talking about how the Apostle Peter represents so many of us humans in this whole scapegoating cycle, right? Because the Apostle Peter becomes part of the mob when he denies Jesus. And he's sitting out there overnight around a fire with some of the other members while Jesus is off being tried and he denies knowing Jesus three times. And the thing that's so significant about that is that Peter... He knew Jesus, right? He had a relationship with Jesus. He knew who he was. He didn't totally understand what he was about, but he was getting there. If there was anybody who should have understood what was going on, it was Peter. And yet Peter, even Peter, blends into the crowd and is silent and doesn't stand up for his friend. And that's the temptation. It's to be silent. It's to blend in. It's not to fully bear the price. And in fact, oftentimes people who are silent in a mob, they actually view themselves as sort of victims in the system. Because it's like, Jesus, how could you do this to us? You know, if you would just stop stirring the pot, then the Romans wouldn't treat us so harshly. Like, we agree with what you're doing in theory, right? This is Caiaphas. Like, I know that you're not doing anything really wrong and you're just healing people, but gosh, for goodness sake, stop magnifying the reasons for the anxiety in the system. We're trying to keep the group together. And if one or more people needs to go for that to happen, well, just let them go, right? That's the temptation of the mob. And we all have a tendency to do that. You know, it's my tendency to do that in some spaces. It's yours as well. It's something that's part of our humanity. You know, I was a scapegoat in one significant scenario in my life, but I'm part of the mob in other scenarios. And there's good news that's offered to us. Ken's going to preach Peter part two, I think, next week. Yeah, where he talks about how Jesus restores Peter and how much grace is offered us when we fall into that because it's part of our oh-so-human nature. But what following Jesus means in this system is if you're part of the mob, that you have to confess your sin and repent. Right? And to repent just means to turn away from. It just means to go a different direction, to change our way. 
to do our best with the help of God's spirit to renounce these scapegoating ways in our life. And the more I've unpacked this over the last several months, I think the importance of our tradition of confession and repentance has become just even more clear to me. You know, because without confession and repentance, there is no reconciliation between humans and humans and between humans and God. So here's something that I've learned from being a scapegoat. Right? So for those of you who are new, I was fired for being gay from a church about a year and a half ago. And this was part of how I processed that whole system. And one of the things that I've learned, that I think I'm at a point where I can actually share now, is that there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Right? There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. So forgiveness of others is expected of all Jesus followers. And it can be incredibly hard to do. You know, for some people, that can be a lifetime of work depending on what has been done to them. We'll probably do a whole sermon series on forgiveness this fall because some of the people I've been looking to for wisdom, I thought, who's the best at unpacking um, forgiveness and reconciliation? Desmond Tutu, right? Desmond Tutu, the archbishop in South Africa who's helped mend an entire nation and his daughter, Mfo Tutu. So they have a wonderful book on forgiveness that we'll work through. So forgiveness is the path that we walk. I can forgive people, I can bless them on their path, and I can maintain healthy boundaries. Like, my job in the role of scapegoat is to forgive. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, right? He was showing the victims how to do that. And my job is also to renounce any gut instinct to retaliate, which I think I did sort of intuitively, right? To, to renounce continuing a cycle of violence, because violence only begets violence. Right, so if you're a scapegoat or a victim in any situation, your job is to forgive and to renounce. And that's what Archbishop Desmond Tutu discovered when he did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after apartheid. He said, for there to be true reconciliation after all of the brutality and all of the injustice that apartheid brought, so the brutalizers actually have to sit down with the people that they abused. They have to sit down with the people they abused and they have to name their crimes. Right? This is an important part of reconciliation. They have to name their crimes. They have to take personal responsibility for their part, and they have to own their offenses. Right? And then the victims can then grant forgiveness, and then the victims can then decide whether they want to renew that relationship or whether they want to release the relationship. And he says both options are valid because it's not always healthy for a victim to be reconciled to an oppressor if they've been abused. Right? It isn't healthy for a battered woman to go back and reconcile to her abuser, even if the abuser owns his or her stuff. And it might not even be healthy for the battered woman to be reconciled with people who watched the abuse and did nothing to stop it. Does that make sense? So there's an option to release. It's not healthy to go back to people who are actively harming you or who are not safe. But I've started to believe that the only way any kind of reconciliation can happen between humans is for members of the mob to confess their sin. And I've been thinking about that in terms of race relations, even in America, right? That there'll be no real reconciliation unless white people can say, look, I have participated in and I have benefited from racist systems. And I'm sorry, and I'm learning my best, and I'm trying to learn how to repent of this. And I'd say it's always up to the oppressors and not the oppressed to do the naming and the repenting. Because if the victim, right, if the victim names the sin against them to the oppressor, and the oppressor doesn't acknowledge it, it re-injures the victim by invalidating them. You know, for people who say racism doesn't exist, all they're saying to them is, you're making this up. 
Your way that you're making sense of your world is invalid. I'm not going to listen to you. And that, that just has the effect of re-injuring. Now, there's a balance in choosing. Like, sometimes people who have been oppressed choose to tell their stories anyway, because some people will actually listen and learn. And so there's this balance between, am I going to be re-victimized, or is it worth taking that chance in order to win hearts and minds to our cause? And so that's a discussion that I think is constantly being had, because you have to weigh the costs and benefits. I've learned that the tendency of the mob is oftentimes really to not own the, um, not own the harm that's caused by the participation to not personally own it. So I'm going to give you a very personal example. So give me some grace here. Because I don't usually talk about um, some of the things that had happened to me. I don't like to use it from the pulpit much. But about a month ago, I ran into somebody who was terrible to me during my public outing and sub subsequent firing at the vineyard. And I saw him out in public, and they were like, hey, how are you? It's so good to see you. And so I tried to just ignore him and go on and do my thing. And when I started to leave the building, they came up to me and they said, don't you remember me? Look, I'm trying to say hi to you. And I was really upset. I felt a little violated. I went out to my car and then I came back in and I said, you know, here's the thing. You stood up publicly and advocated for me being fired just because I'm gay. And you were really horrible to me and you said some terrible things and I don't consider us friends. And I know I thought, that sounds harsh. And I want to tell you, I feel pressure as a pastor, to make things like seem okay, right? To, to smooth things over and to move on. But you know what? I don't think that actually helps my gospel witness as I understand it. Because what it says is that what happened to the scapegoat was okay. And that it needed to happen. And that it probably didn't affect me much. You know, like we're cool. Which then makes it actually easier for scapegoating to take place again. Right? Because it did affect me. It affected me deeply. I'm human. It's taken me about two years to process it and to work out my own stuff and to forgive it and to be able to gain some wisdom where I feel like I can preach from things that I've learned without just working out my emotional stuff from the pulpit. But it's not honest or healthy for me to pretend to be friends with people who deeply hurt me. I can forgive them, but not be friends. And this is where Desmond Tutu has been really, really helpful. He says this, he said, forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies and our loved ones is not about pretending that things are other than they are. It's not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the pain, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It's a risky undertaking, but in the end, it's worthwhile because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can only bring superficial healing. So I feel like this place where I've finally been able to come to, for me, it's actually more hopeful for reconciliation for me to be able to just state honestly how things are. Because if someone came to me and they owned what they did and they named their part in the mob and they repented and changed their ways, there would be a chance of restored relationship. I would be okay with that. I would be very open to that in many cases. And in fact, I've come to believe that's the only way that reconciliation can truly be achieved in any broken relationship. It's the only way that a relationship can ever actually be safe again for both parts. And so this has actually been opening my eyes to the way that Jesus and the New Testament writers even talk about our relationship with God. Right? We've talked about reconciliation between humans and humans, but the Bible also talks about us being reconciled as humans to God. And so the scriptures reveal that we are all part of the human mob. 
who put Jesus to death. In some way, we are all part of that mob. And so to be reconciled to God, it is important. It's not to just be like, oh yeah, I'm cool with God. We have to confess our sin. Right? We have to name our part in that mob and confess how we have hurt others and how we have hurt God. And when we confess that we are part of this mob who killed Jesus, and then we repent and we change our ways, right? We repent of this scapegoating and projecting our stuff onto other people and of not loving God and not loving our neighbors like we could, we're told that God is faithful and just and he forgives us and that he's already done his part. His arms are open wide for reconciliation and it's just up to us to do our part, to make our confession and accept the restored relationship. And then we're invited to go and invite other people into this project of healing, right? And this actually brings about the kingdom of God on earth. This is how we actually do the hard work of restoring relationships. And so this for me has even changed the way, you know, like I grew up in a church culture where it was like you had altar calls, right? You come up, you get your ticket to heaven. But I'm like, man, this is a gospel I can invite people into. You know, this, we've got a Jesus who came down and he said, invite people into this project of stopping scapegoating, stopping cycles of violence. Stop it, reveal it, go out, be prophetic, proclaim the truth. Do the hard work of naming the things that you've done and making actual reconciliation with people. And honestly, I don't even think you have to believe that Jesus is the king of the universe to do that. I hope you one day do. But many of the people, like Jesus went around and he said, follow me, follow me, follow me, to all of these people. They didn't even know who he was. Right? Peter, Jesus was like, who do people say that I am? And they're like, I don't know, Elijah? I don't know. John the Baptist? Peter kind of got it. They didn't even know who he was, but they were following him. And so that's what I can invite people into doing, man. If you can follow this Jesus out of this path and this cycle of violence, man, come, let's bring about the kingdom of God together, right? Let's worship this God together. All right, so we usually do two minutes of silence. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to do one of those things. Or like, we're going to be silent for two minutes. Of course, like people make noise, babies make noise. It doesn't have to be perfectly silent, but... You know, if you just want to take this time and reflect on the ways that maybe you've been part of the mob. And you're like, man, like, Mike is talking about doubt. Like, I don't even know if I know who this Jesus is or if there is a God. But man, this sounds like a worthwhile project and I'm willing to follow that. Let's just take a minute and confess that to God or to the Holy Spirit or to whatever it is that you're envisioning. And just say, I just want to follow you. I want to follow this. And to start out this two minutes of silence here, I'm going to read a passage from 1 Peter. Um, so I'll read the passage, and then we'll just concentrate on our breathing and invite the Holy Spirit to just do what, do what she will do. 1 Peter 2, 23 to 25. It says, When they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of your souls. Come, Holy Spirit.
Jesus, I ask that for those of us in here who are maybe teachers or managers or leaders or parents who lead others in some capacity, Lord, that you would give us extra wisdom to be able to see when these dynamics are at play in our classrooms, on our teams, in our companies, in our families, that you would give us um, the prophetic eyes to see, to be able to unmask where that's going on. And Lord, for those of us who have been doing some business with you this morning, God, I just ask that you would bless people who are looking to maybe take another step toward you, no matter what that means, Lord. And that together we relinquish, we relinquish our, our very human desire to scapegoat, this human desire that helps us feel like we're belonging to a group or in unity with a group, Lord, but we know that there's no unity without justice. So Lord, help us to work for both unity and justice. And Jesus, you promised that your Holy Spirit would come and help us because we can't always see these things. And so Lord, I just invite your Holy Spirit for those who would like it, Lord, to come and refill us again this morning. Lord, that you would brighten eyes, that you would open ears, Lord, that you would give us minds that are just changed, Lord, where we feel like there's wisdom that we haven't known before and where your spirit is literally like enlivening our bodies, that we can go out and we can love people the way that your son loved people and that we can open our arms in that same embrace that you showed the world as you were so vulnerable and naked before us on the cross. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.